Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike. It's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride because you just tuned in to the Swandingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life. And let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. And welcome back to another episode of the Swan Dingo Files with John, fellow veteran, who's an author, also a poetic human. So, here to introduce to you, John. How are you today, John? Hey, brother. Thanks for having me here, Stephen. I'm going to enjoy today's show. I know that what you've been doing is a lot of good conversations, and uh, I'm humbled and blessed to be here. Thank you. Well, I appreciate taking time out of your busy day, so... Uh, today we're going to talk about why you joined, your period of being in the military, your transition out, and some of the fascinating things you're doing today, including a couple of books that you've got published. So if you want to take it away with why did you join the military? Well, I was born an Army brat. I was My dad was in the, was stationed in Germany, and uh, my sister was born there, too. I was born in Stuttgart. She was born in Heidelberg. We were baby boomers. Uh, four kids in the family, two older sisters, a younger brother. And I was the only out of, only one out of four, all four siblings that joined. And of course, I just felt it was an obligation. I really just wanted, I didn't want to look back someday and say, you know what? You know, America has given so much to me. And I even knew it at that age that maybe, maybe it's worth a few years of my life. And, uh, and I'm glad I did. It's probably one of the best decisions I ever made. So more yeah, out of sense, know. more out of sense of duty, you know, and, and I met some of the best people in my life when I was in the service and, um, I had extraordinary leaders and, um, I didn't eat cheese. I just did my job and I was a soldier. And, um, I got to say it's, it's been a great benefit to me in my life. Learned a lot of things in the army. So, uh, your, it was your dad that was in the army, right? He was stationed in Germany then. Right. He was stationed in Germany. He was an armor officer. And of course, in the 50s, it was Cold War stuff. And so he used to tell me all the time, you know, if there was ever a a breakout, that they were basically going to be dead within a very short time, you know, because the Russians at that time, Soviet bloc, it was all Cold War stuff. And I just grew up around history. And I always looked up to my father and used to just like watching him, you know, in uniform and he used to teach at the command and general staff college in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And he just, he taught me so much about the civil war and about how important it was to appreciate those in uniform. Of course, my grandparents on his side, his parents were from Croatia, Yugoslavia, and they came to America in the early 1900s and literally had nothing, but they did have seven kids and all seven kids, the, the, the girls too, they all served uh, in some capacity. Uh, in the military, had a uncle who was on a B-17, one of those belly gunner guys, and yep. uh, did all their missions and survived. Another one was in Tokyo Bay when the Japanese surrendered. So I was raised on apple pie in, in the United States. Um, and my grandparents on that side never spoke English. So they just came here and worked. My grandfather was a steel mill worker for 37 years in an open foundry. And my dad used to tell me as a young kid, he would sit there and he would see the fuselages 
of airplanes and tank chassis and jeeps. You know, the American war machine was turning things out during World War II, and he was the baby of the family. He, he, you know, he graduated from high school in 1952, so he didn't have to go, but he taught me quite a bit. That's good to know. Um, so, if your dad was an armor officer, what'd you pick? Well, you know, I kind of, I tried, it was kind of interesting. I, I had, so I asked around, I, and I, I had a lot of people tell me, you know, officer's great, you know, but try it the enlisted route. You know, and I had already gone to college first. And so I looked into direct commissions, and there was none being given away at that time. So I took the ASVAB test. And uh, basically qualified for just about every job that the Army had to offer, except for the stuff where you had to use your critical mass up here. But And I, and I had a few jobs to, to choose from. And the NDC, uh, MOS, Military Occupational Specialty Skill, kind of caught my eye. I was asking the recruiter about it, and he made it sound all glorious. And when I got in and got to AIT, I learned that uh, it wasn't so glorious being in MOP Level 4 all the time. And, all the missions were always downrange cleaning vehicles, you know, as if we were in a chemical attack. But I, I, you know, that's what I did was NBC nuclear biological chemical specialist learned a lot about quarantines and a lot about vectors and biology and, you know, chemicals and nuclear uh, armaments and, and just absolutely had a blast. I was in the fourth infantry division, not, not literally, but, just it, it was it was just I felt like I really was doing something, you know, being a soldier in, in the military. And I used to I was really proud when I put the uniform on and I just I just loved it. Um, wasn't always, you know, great. But at the same time, you know, we, we, we were downrange quite a bit. And I, I was in between Grenada and Desert Storm. So my experience was peacetime. We were trained up, you know, to go in, in case a conflict happened. And I was already out when Desert Storm kicked off. And it's interesting because my first sergeant called me. I was in back home in Florida, and 4th ID was in Colorado, Fort Carson. And he said, you know, Sergeant Crotech, he says, we've got a position. I've got a line and a paragraph number for you if you want to come back in. I can't tell you what we're doing, but we're painting the tracks for the desert. So this is like several months before it kicked off, and I went to the recruiter, tried to get back in. They were taking no prior service in my MOS, so I re-enlisted and went into the Army Reserve System, 3rd of the 9th Field Artillery here on the southwest coast of Florida, 7th of the 9th Field Artillery, and uh, and spent a little bit of time in the Reserve System. And back in the early 90s, the reserves were not like they are today. Today they're very well trained and so it was, it was, it was odd to be a regular army soldier and to go into the reserve system back in the nineties. And it, it kind of after a year of it, you know, when they were giving away awards for Humvee driving, I just, you know, I got out and the, no slight to the guys I served with. It just wasn't like the regular army. And then of course, after Desert Storm and 20 years of conflict, all of those units, which you well know, Stephen, got trained up and became some really great units. So how many years total did you end up doing? Well, three years in uh, regular Army, 
almost two years in, in the reserves, and then the rest was IRR. So it was eight years total. But we didn't do anything the last three years, two and a half years. Yeah, I just find it funny you got con into your uh, recruit your recruiter to be a NBC guy, and it's like I only put I was a recruiter for a little bit, and only one person I ever put into NBC because that was the only job she she had available, and it's just like. I didn't talk it up or nothing. I just said, good luck. Um, you really want to join, so not many options. You either get out of town now or you wait till maybe something else opens. And she's like, I just got to get out of town. So we put her in as NBC. And I never heard from her again. So I don't think she was very happy. But it's like, eh, I don't know. I saw we, I saw what those guys go through. And, you know, I hated Mop Level 4. So it's like, I'm not going <laughs> to push that on anybody. I know there's a need for it. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not going to push that on anybody if I don't have to. Yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying, Stephen. It was it was um it was fascinating. You know, it was scary to think about a nuclear war and cleaning up a battlefield with atomic fallout on it. You know, nuclear fallout. But you know, we learned all about flash to bang time and you know how to how to clean up battlefields and how to direct convoys through contaminated battlefields. Then you know, hasty and deliberate decon. And a lot of people don't realize. Uh, you get in a war like that, that is that is just nasty stuff. And when you start talking about nerve agents and blood agents and all this other stuff, I, I started to wonder what kind of mind even invents stuff like that, you know? And and God forbid that we ever get into a nuclear war or a chemical war because it's going to be something that war is bad enough, but something like that makes it even worse, I think. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of time at this point with our current conflicts and everything around the world going on and the major players all teaming up with one another now. I think it's, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, but just a lot of unsettling factors going on today, but it is what it is. So, uh, after your military service, uh, what'd you end up doing afterwards? Well, what I got out. Doing? Yeah, I got out. And I, interestingly enough, I got out and I, I, I was hanging around the recruiter's office. You know, I wanted, I, I don't know, once you're a soldier, once you're in the military, those listeners who know that, when you come back into the civilian world, you miss your pizos. You know, and as goofy as it sounds, you, you miss the you miss the orderliness of it. You know, you get out in the civilian world, you know you were a civilian once, then you're not a civilian. You're a soldier or a Marine or Navy corpsman or whatever, Air Force person. Then you get out, and I think that you're always that, because once you've touched that military lifestyle, you you speak the language. And so you know, I got out talking to World War II guys and Vietnam veterans and stuff, and they were all saying, you know, you ought to make a career out of it. So what happened was I was trying to get back in and go SF, and I got the Q course packet, and I was looking at all that. But what I found out was I was going to have to do a hardship tour. And the woman that I was dating at that time, <laughs> you know how that goes. She, you know, we, we weren't ready for that. So I just waited a little while. Then when the Gulf War kicked off, I went back into reserves. But I was painting houses out on the beach in Florida and, you know, uh, working with a couple of contractors. We were doing menial labor and. I, you know, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was lost. I just, I was thinking, I was thinking, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm out here in the civilian world. 
I'm not sure if it's really for me. But what I ended up doing was going into business with my, she was my girlfriend at that time. And we started a business a couple of years out. I borrowed some money from my dad, paid back every nickel. And we went into a small business um, out a backpacking store. And we built it into a very, very successful business and actually owned it for 23 years. And everything we made, we put back into it. Uh, we built a pretty nice business. We started doing mountain climbing trips to South America and our customers weren't just hiking in Florida. They were going all over the world. We built up a really rock solid reputation. And then it shifted when, when I had a traffic accident, things started to shift in my life, but, but I went about my business. You know, we just, I was more disciplined. Put in a lot of long hours. We were honest with our customers. We never oversold anybody. We always developed relationships with people. Uh, I always just took an interest in whoever came in the door of our shop. Uh, used to really feel good about people coming in for advice. And, you know, we never took advantage of anybody. And I think that's why we were successful. Um, you were more personable and upfront. And you actually got to know your customers. So, of course, yeah, you'd be you would be successful. Look at business today. If you're just a customer, you're not an actual return uh, client that they want to keep around. No, that's a good point, Stephen. You know, I, I put out on LinkedIn, I put out a, <laughs> I put out a survey a couple of months back and I said, you know, with your social media marketing company, do you, is it one working for you? Number two, do you feel like an experiment or number three, is it not working? And every single person I think that responded was either two or three. Mm-hmm. And so you're exactly right. And what, I, what I've encountered, you know, we were talking about this earlier offline before we came on the show, but what I've encountered, you know, going from bricks and mortar and having one-on-one conversations with customers and treating them right and, you know, getting schooled by them too, we were into a game of digital, a digital world, you know, the digital business world, and everybody has become a number. And the people and the contractors that I've worked with for work, a lot of times that personal touch is not there. And, you know, anybody that's listening that's in the digital space that has services or goods, remember that. You know, try to make your experience, that experience with your client base, something real. And try not to make them feel like they're just another number and all you want is more money. And be interested in their business. Be interested in who they are. You know, pray for their success because their success is yours and it won't take long for word to get out if you continue to treat customers like just numbers. You know, we're not. We're real people. Yeah, and that's a big thing. I think this generation coming up now is losing that touch. Everybody just wants to do – well, and AI, AI is personally going to make it worse. Um, we're we're going to lose that human touch here real soon. And it's happening right now. Uh, I'm hearing of editors already getting fired and publishers because they're going to go to AI now. So it's like, so you're just going to completely go computer, just like everybody else. I I was talking to a woman this morning uh, who's also a critical thinker, and she was saying that we've dehumanized the human experience with technologies. And it's kind of interesting because – these people skills are so extremely important. And I, I got to tell you, back in like 1978, I took a marketing class when I was in school. And I remember part of the curriculum, part of the required reading 
And I thought I was just a badass, right? I'm 18 years old. I'm college. You ain't going to tell me anything, right? And the book was Amy Vanderbilt's book of etiquette. I'm like, what the heck am I going to read this thing for? But I read it as part of the curriculum. We were tested on it. And I got to tell you, some of those things in that book have hung with me. And it's the little things, the little etiquette things that we can do to treat each other with some dignity and respect that can that can go a long way. And, oh, that's woo-woo and, oh, that's so cliche. And But I was pulling out of the Walmart parking lot yesterday morning. I had to go in and get some ink for my printer. And I'm cruising in my Jeep next to this young lady out watering the plants in the garden center, right? And I rolled down the window of my Jeep, and she's got the sprayer, and she's out there. It's kind of chilly. And I said, hey, he turned around and looked at me like, you know, what the? I said, you are doing a good job. Have a good day. And Stephen, let me tell you, man, the look on her face just lightened up. And I didn't do it to just to pat myself on the back. I did it because I meant it. And I thought, here's this young woman. She's probably chilled to the bone. We're in, you know, northwestern Virginia. And... I just felt good about that, and I, and I know she did too. And it's those little things that the book of etiquette taught me as a young person that have stuck with me and have helped me out of many interesting situations. So, people skills, man. Yeah, we're we're not meant to live through technology and just AI and social media, which we've pretty much gotten to for the most part. But we're meant to socialize and be with one another on a daily basis. We're not meant to grow in big cities we're meant to be smaller town rural country folk we're meant to be you know personable on a certain level we're meant to be you know quid pro quo you do this for me i'll do that for you this whole money system breaking our system it's you know we're, we're supposed to be a community and we're not no more and it's unfortunate but we're not gonna get too much into a tangent on that so how did you create a poetic human and what does that exactly mean though well, you know, Poetic Human came out of, you know, I was a uh, childhood sexual assault survivor between my, the third and fourth grade. Um, an event happened, 90 seconds, that really touched my life in a not-so-good way but and kept it hidden. But I found myself, you know, when other kids were trying to pick friends for kickball teams, I was wondering, what are people thinking about me? because of this thing that happened, right? And so I started to find comfort in writing. So I was writing letters or uh, poetry and essays on, you know, why I hate being a guy and why I don't trust people. And, and, you know, all these things that were bottled up inside that have come as a result of of an emotional trauma. And I just started writing. So I've always written, I think I've got 7,000 poems. You know, poems are probably the smallest section in the bookstore, but the reality is is poetry is an expression of one's personality. And, you know, writing is is a great form of healing. So long story short, I was involved in a DUI accident in 2012, and it it gave me a traumatic brain injury. What it also gave me was a pathway. And I, very short order, of these major mood swings due to the TBI, I, all my friends were alienating from me and my wife and I it wasn't too long before we were involved in a divorce and uh, 
I made that proverbial call to a hotline, suicide hotline. And I said, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. You know, my life's falling apart, but I, I need, I don't feel like I want to be here and I, I need help. You know, I reached out and they got me the help I needed. It was a long journey back. I, I dealt with the personal stuff and had to work on some semantics and putting thoughts to, to conversation and, and then interestingly enough, after 11 months of cognitive behavioral therapy, I got that, that card from my wife saying that she's seen a change in me and that she had called off the divorce. So the marriage was saved through a lot of hard work. We still work on the relationship, but you know, that it led one thing led to another. Then I went into green zone hero. I wanted to get back and we started this business, uh, where we were, it was intrinsic value. And we created a, a business directory of companies that did things for veterans. And that really took off. Um, was really looking good. Harley Davidson and Mission Barbecue and, uh, um, Wars Head Provisions, Sam Ash Music. We were starting to get some really good traction on that. And then COVID hit. Mm. And as we all know, what happened with COVID, everybody's businesses and livelihoods were affected. And so I, I wanted to go into, some type of an arrangement where I could become a speaker and I could give people, um, you know, my story and I could maybe help them through some of their own traumas. And in that journey, you know, I came up with a TEDx talk, which is being shopped around right now. And the title of it is the male leadership crisis and the second law of thermodynamics. And it has to do with universal entropy and male leadership and why we're failing and the things that we can do to get to get the ship righted again, you know, humankind back on track. And it, it's going to take leadership, not just male leadership, male, females too. But the poetic human is not really about poetry. It's about being in motion. And it's about living your best life, finding your calling, living your purpose giving the world your value. And that's kind of where the poetic human came from. And then out of that, we did the online workshop called Heart Scribes, which is a six-week writing course, which is a, a, an amazing way to get really close to who you are. It's just three assignments. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's easy to do. And at the end of those, when we compile 100 pieces, we put them into a book. So we started that last year and had a few people go through the course, but as you as you know, thanks for the coffee. But as you know, building a brand in the digital space is a chore, and it takes commitment and it takes consistency, and and so there's a million things that people can look at, and we're just one of them. So there comes the importance of the network. Sorry, yeah. if I'm talking too much. You know, no, no, you're you're good. You got to. I'm on coffee. Story. I know I should have gotten some coffee. I was like, uh, but, <laughs> like, I don't know. It's already this late. Wait, where are you at now? I'm in northwestern Virginia now. We're in the Shenandoah Valley. Okay, so you're eastern time. So, man, you're drinking coffee at 3.30 in the afternoon? Oh, yeah. yeah. And you're here. Uh, I don't know. You you old people don't really. Caffeine doesn't hurt you none. No, I'm kidding. I'm no, joking. it doesn't, man. I could drink it and go to sleep at night. It's crazy, man. You're like but, a uh, mother. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be 60, 64 years old this year, man. And I, I feel, I don't feel 64, but 
it's 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 you know age is the thing in your head anyways what's important is just that you find you 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 know we're all born with a certain skill set and we all know what they are you know it just takes a little bit of self introspection and some courage at times but you know find out what, you know what makes your your boat float you know where were you in your life when things were just tracking when you were running on all cylinders what were you doing and then try to build on that. You know, when you think about the industrial revolution, now we're talking the digital age, but you know, people went from living their lifestyles in guilds and in livelihoods and went into the corporate lifestyle. And I don't think humans were ever meant to hang out in offices 24 seven. They just don't think that's the way that living life is supposed to be. I agree with you on that one. We're not supposed to be in an office cooped up in a, I don't know, however big office built. And no matter how big your office is, that's not where a human's supposed to be. No. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And, and there's, and there's nothing wrong with corporate corporations. We all have to make a living, but there are things that we can do to make the light, the livelihood healthier. Um, you know, we've all heard of mind, body, spirit. You know, it's so cliche these days, but it's true. If we take care of number one, and not in a selfish way, if you can be the best you can be, remember that commercial, Stephen? Uh, if we, if you can really work to being the best you can be, you're only going to make the people around you feel that positivity that just comes from you. Well, and I think that's what I like about the veteran community. Like since I started doing just the podcast, uh, my business partner Trey Carmichael, he's even said that, you know, he started podcasts for other people and there, when he would reach out to people, it was harder to get people to come on their shows. He was surprised by how fast the veterans were just scheduling, booking appointments and interview times. And it's just like, and I was surprised too, because since I got out, I've been out for coming up on six years now. I had never really wanted to do any of this kind of stuff, but I do now. I want to be a truck driver. I want to be alone. Didn't want to talk to nobody. Just let me make my money, take care of my kids, leave me the hell alone. I can't believe the community of veterans we have here, and not not just veterans, first responders too, and anybody, any civilian that's never served that does still want to help. It's just the support is enormous. The network is enormous, and everybody's so willing to share their knowledge, their expertise, um, give a hand. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big fan of some of the veterans that want to charge $50,000 for their program. I don't think that should happen. <laughs> no, yeah. I get it. Yeah. But I mean, I get what they're doing, but I think that's wrong. Um, but you know, it's just, it's crazy the network that you can build just this community and how many veterans I've now hooked up with that are taking us along for a ride with them. And it's just like, I'll be blunt. Holy shit. This is crazy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, it is. And you know, we did a podcast show called Straight Out of Combat Radio. I think we had 140 interviews, but I I was amazed at the at the community of veterans. But what really amazed me, we'd ask we'd always ask a question at the end of the show: What does freedom mean to you, right? And Stephen, I got to tell you, man, I got 137 or 140 different answers, and it was it was fascinating. You know, you're exactly right. There's it's a brother and sisterhood. And if you and and if you haven't worn the uniform, of course, not for everybody. You don't have to. It's not going to make you a superstar, but it just adds to your resume. But you, 
I meant like, and I wasn't just blowing smoke. I met some of the best people in my life being in the military. And the cool thing was, no matter what happened to us when we were in the barracks, when we were out in the field, and especially as combat soldiers like you guys, when the pedal, you know, when the pedal hit the, the metal, the metal hit the, however it goes, you know, it was, it was, when it was game time, you could count on people. And that's one thing that I truly miss about being in the service that you don't necessarily find out here in the civilian world is that not everybody is to be trusted out here. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and you have to really keep your head on a swivel and pay attention. Yeah, definitely. On the outside, I mean, I live uh, a couple of veterans that live around me here, um, both retired E9s, one from the Air Force. We won't hold that against them. No, uh, he's, he's a nice guy. Uh, the other one is a retired sergeant major from the Army, and he's pretty down to earth. His, his wife's kind of bossy, but she's pretty cool, though. But, I mean, I, I think I, that's why I moved to a, a military community. I just wanted to get kind of backgrounded a little bit. Um, I, I don't know. I just feel a sense of, I guess, being safer on a military base than I do, you know, 50, 100 miles away, whatever it was from the closest one. So, I don't know, call me weird, but I just... No, that's not weird, man. It's understandable. It's kind of like when 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 we were doing the show and some of the World War II guys that I had the honor of, you know, talking to, those guys were just phenomenal. You know, being soldiers, we could talk the language. I mean, when you meet somebody that spent, you know, four years in a combat zone, you know, it wasn't these rotations where you came back and, you know, guys that landed on the beach in D-Day and, one guy was shot down in Vietnam and was in the Hanoi Hilton for four years. I mean, those kinds of stories are fascinating. And those are the kind of people I like to hang with. People that are, you know, gutsy and people that understand commitment and understand sacrifice. And they don't just offer lip service. I'm not going to say anybody in the military is a saint, but I can say this. I would probably trust a military person before I would a civilian. And you said be blunt. That's probably a fact. No, nah, it is a little interesting fact. Uh, my wife is Navajo, and uh, her grandmother had four or five brothers. I can't remember how many for sure. It's four or five. And you know Navajos co talkers. All oh yeah, were, yeah, World War Two guys. Yeah, all of them were co talkers. So it's like, I'm, they all passed, but it's like, man, I wish I could have just spent. Five minutes with just one of them, but before me and her got together, they were already all gone. And it's like, yeah, that, yeah I would have loved to interview one of those guys. Yeah, I, I like the World War II guys because that was a special era and special breed compared to even today. Um, Vietnam, I, I pay a lot of respect to the Vietnam veterans because how they were treated when they came home, they wanted to make sure the ones from my generation didn't come home that way. Um, you know, four deployments. Always had the support of our veteran community, the older ones, um, through the VFW's American Legion. Um, nobody ever spit on us. Nobody ever – we always had somebody there to support us, unlike the Vietnam veterans. So I pay a lot of respect to the Vietnam veterans for paving the road for us to come home to something besides protesters, I guess you can say. So I like, Absolutely. I like support. Couldn't agree with you more, Stephen. You know, my mentor uh, was an Army – is an army veteran, Vietnam veteran. He's about 10 years older than me. And he, his dad was a captain on Omaha Beach during D-Day and was also a general in Vietnam. Of course, he went in and enlisted like me, combat engineer. And 
we have shared some stories. In fact, he shared a story the other day. He wrote a piece for me. You know, I'm always getting him to write stuff, and it was called Stacking Bodies. And he, he was telling me that, you know, if you stack dead bodies all in the same direction, all the heads, he said they start to lean over. And he said, and they'll fall over. And he said that the new guys would come in, and that's how they would stack the bodies. And he said, so I told him, I told him straight up, you got to do the heads this way one row. And the head's this way, the other row. And I know it's morbid, but but my point is is that those kinds of stories, if you don't write about them, if you don't talk about it, they can just gnaw away at you. And I was fascinated, not that I wanted to know that, but if you stack dead bodies in opposite directions, they won't fall over. And he said he was so sick and tired of those newbies, you know, <laughs> making a mess of his AO, you know. That's crazy, man. Well, that's that, that's some good knowledge we might need to know. I mean, you never know when it's going to get to that point. I hope it doesn't get to that point, but you just never know. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think that's just you know we're two army guys talking, and uh, just you know he just shared that with me this morning, as a matter of fact. And uh, we're we're I'm, I'm working with another guy that was 173rd Airborne Battalion. He's a Vietnam veteran who's also a poet, and uh, he. Actually wrote a song, uh, a piece about being a python and what it was like for him to transition and rotate back into the states and the way he described how a python is and you know Rick Herringer is his name and, and he's a great guy so uh, you know without a human connection and without being able to speak the language of veterans um, life would be a lot less than it is for us. No, I, I agree with you. Um... I know you talk about writing. I know you've done a bunch of poems, and 7,000 poems. That's a crazy amount of poems. I never even thought about that. Um, but you also have a couple books up. Yes, I have a, a book. My first book was out called Fractals, and it was about finding uh, acceptance um, in a world after sexual assault. It basically was a couple hundred poems of mine, and it did real, real well. And then the second book came out <laughs> during the lockdowns. And it's called Freedom Punch. It's a little bit edgier. And of course, I love America and I love the Bill of Rights and I love history and I love men and women in uniform and not in a creepy way, but in a real spiritual way. And that's a little bit edgier, but might come back to haunt me someday. But Freedom Punch is, it's taken a swipe at what was going on in 2020. And then I got my self-help book. It's in editing right now called The Poetic Human overcoming you know ancestral trauma and winning so that'll be out uh july 1st we're retooling um freedom zone our green zone hero and the freedom zone hero and we've got a couple of things going on so you're going to hear more from us in the near future and being on shows like yours are great because you give guys like us the opportunity to not only help to educate but also to, to spread the word about what it is we're doing and that means well, a lot I mean, I'm glad to have you guys on and everything. It's uh, nice to um, hear different voices, but I'm only doing this partially for my therapy. So you guys are helping me with telling me your, your guys' trauma was before, during, or after your service. Realize that with the right network and the right people to talk to, you can overcome anything and still succeed in this life instead of putting a bullet, uh, you know, in your mouth or to your head or whatever, or drinking yourself to death. There's people, I mean, it's a very tight network of people, and it's, 
I mean, there really shouldn't be any reason for suicide and stuff like that with the amount of network. We just got to get that voice out there. So you guys are actually helping me in a way um, by telling your stories and how you guys have become so successful on the outside. And I'm really hoping one day I will be, you know, more successful than all of you put together. That's the goal. So well, that's a good that's a good goal to go to, you know, kind of like I can't tell you how many times, you know, I was on my hands and knees crying and praying to some higher power to help get me through whatever it was that was that was irking me. But I look at it like this, you know, you're in the desert. Life is like the desert, right? And you got this great path going to that summit. But you got all these dirt roads, you know, off on the side. You keep thinking there's a shortcut. There's a shortcut. But if you take those dirt roads too often, you're going to run out of water. You're going to run out of fuel. You're going to run out of something, and you're going to die in that desert. So I always say, and this just came to mind now looking at this picture I got, I always say just stay focused. Take it one mile at a time, one click at a time, one day at a time, because that those mountains will get bigger and bigger and bigger if you go down that black ribbon. And it's a matter of just believing in yourself and what you just said, Stephen, which is so freaking important, man, build the right network of people who really care about you. They're around. They're out there. It's not going to be everybody. Can't say enough about your wife and supporting you and what she does in your life. And God bless her and the Navajo Indians. You know, we had a Navajo guy in our unit. We actually named him. Uh, when we were out in the field one day and he loved it. He went by the name of, his name was Ross Henry and if he's ever listening, but we named him Prancing Moose and he absolutely ate that stuff up and it was all fun and games until it got to where we, we had to do what we had to do and Ross was a guy that you could count on. Yeah, um, well, the only reason why I know my wife is because my brother-in-law who has passed now, but, uh, I used to call him Big Chief Little Sprocket. <laughs> was he a motorcycle rider? No, um, it was for other reasons. He, he he was he was a big boy, but never mind. We're not gonna go into that one. But I, got no, I just kind of gave it to him, and and I don't know, it just kind of stuck. But yeah, he was a good guy too. He was my roommate out of Fort Riley, and then I guess it's been about two years now. I think it's been about two years. He passed away due to alcohol, so he was a veteran too. And sorry to hear that, man. Yeah, and it's unfortunately. I mean, we tried to get him the resources. I mean, he was literally sober for a year and a half, and we thought he was on the right path. Went back to school and mm. went back to living on the streets, drinking, and I don't know what all happened. Some pretty bad shit happened, and and that's another reason. You know, I think I feel I, I think I feel some angst behind that that I didn't step up more, but listen to veterans more and how, hearing how they had to reach out or somebody special had to reach out. I feel like sometimes maybe it should have been. You know, me. So I kind of feel a little bit of angst. You know, my brother-in-law plus a, uh, you know, somebody I served with 2003, four in Iraq, roommates out of Fort Riley, knew him really well. And so, so I got a little bit of guilt about that one, but I mean, it's, I mean, I, honestly, I know there was nothing I could have done because he had to wanted the help, but I think I should have tried a lot harder though, in all honesty, but that's on me. Well, you know, you learn from the past and you can always do better. You know, I have a buddy of mine. Name Bobby Henline. He's, I think he was 82nd Airborne and he was blown up in Iraq in, in an IED. And for all intents and purposes, every, well, everybody in that, I believe in his son, were killed and he was burned down to the skull and disfigured him pretty, 
pretty badly. And, and I met Bobby in San Antonio in 2017. We went out there for a fundraiser, John Preston Marine, really good friend of ours. And, and Bobby, um, we hit it off and he ended, he ended up inter, or inviting me to Las Vegas for one of his shows, uh, at Brad Garrett's comedy club. Right. And so I ended up going out there. Bobby, I got to tell you, he, he went by the well, well done comedian, you know, cause he was burnt mm-hmm. to a crisp. And the humor, yeah, the humor in his comedy was unbelievable. You know, you talk about stories and being inspired and all the guys that were in that comedy club were, were veterans that had something to say, but they did it through levity. They did it through humor. And I remember Bobby telling me, man, if he, if he didn't laugh, he'd have a real rough time getting through each day. And, and he is one hell of a soldier and one hell of an inspiration to so many people. And um, great guy. Bobby Henline, look it up. Look him up. He's the well-done comedian, and he's doing a lot of great things. I know he's got a nonprofit. And the list goes on. We could go on here, Stephen, and got a lot of veteran stories to tell. And and I've made friends. I was made an honorary Marine when I was in Saskatchewan a few years ago and went to a retreat up there, and they all, you know, I said, I, I still have green in my veins. If you want to make me a Marine, that's cool. But John, John Preston, I mean, and, and the list goes on. And Richard Caruso, um, just good guys. I just, I just love all those guys to death. And then some great female soldiers too. So sounds like a pretty uh, interesting list. But ah, uh, man, it seems like you had a, quite, a, quite an interesting life, and you've done very well for yourself. And I'm very proud that you made that call several years ago to get on the right path. Thank um, you. I know you're going to keep crushing it. I know you're going to keep doing very well. And I'm proud that you came on my show today. So, and I hope the best for you. But this is all we have time for today, John. Um, on this episode of Swandingo Files, I'm going to keep John around because he does know some nuclear, biological, chemical stuff. And when that news started hitting here soon from Russia, I think I'm going to have John around. So, I'll be seeing you. Yeah, don't look at the flash. Just, you know, put your head between your knees and don't look laying up. Low area. There you go. So, still providing valuable lessons to this day. Everybody have a good Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of the Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host, Stephen Swanson, as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking and keep swanding going.